Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Read More Podcast, the show that brings readers and writers together. I'm your host, Marva Hinton. Today, our guest is Tanatari Dew. She's written several award-winning novels, including My Soul to Keep and The Living Blood. Her latest work is Ghost Summer, a short story collection. And she was one of my mentors in the Antioch University Los Angeles MFA program. Thanks so much for joining us, Tanatari. Very glad to be here. First of all, welcome back to Miami for the Miami Book Fair. I know you lived and worked here for many years when you were working as a reporter for the Miami Herald. What does it feel like to be back? It's a little strange to be back. In fact, I felt some melancholy the first night because uh, my mother has now passed away. My father has moved away. My grandmother has passed away. I have some family here, but not much family. And the Miami Herald building has literally been torn down. So, yeah, it's a very weird sense of going back home, but home has changed so much that it doesn't feel like home anymore. Ghost Summer is your first short story collection. Why did you decide to go in this direction now? You know, I, I learned how to write, writing short stories, and, but I struggled to publish them when I was a learning writer. Uh, I sold a short story um, a few years, really, before I sold my first novel, but the publisher went out of business before it could actually be published. So it's a weird relationship. I, I kind of walked away from short stories when I started publishing novels because, let's face it, novels pay. Short stories primarily don't pay that much. And it was an, author, it was an editor invitation that I started writing short fiction again. So that sort of took the whole rejection process out. You know, they're asking for something and I thought, okay, well, if you really promise you're gonna publish this, I'll write it for you. And I believe the first one was Patient Zero for the magazine of um, fantasy and science fiction. And I made a promise to myself at that point because it got included in a couple of best of the year anthologies for the year 2000, I believe. I said, well, wait a minute, this short story thing is pretty cool. So I made a vow to myself that I would continue to write short fiction just for fun, even as I was publishing novels. And over time, the number just grew. So it was time to publish a collection. And you mentioned rejection. Mm. Are you at a stage in your career now where that's not a factor? Because, you know, for the new writer, you, you sort of get hammered over the head with you're sending out stories and you're getting rejected a lot. Uh, but for someone of your stature, when you have so many novels already out, you've won awards, is that a thing of the past? No. <laughs> As a matter of fact, um, the, the short story, the, the concept of the short story collection was rejected by my primary publisher uh, that was publishing all my novels because my editor said, and she's a dear friend, but don't, they don't sell was sort of the, the rationale. And I hesitated to expose myself to more rejection. As I look at it, I, I spent years not shopping my collection because I didn't know where to go with it. I was so comfortable with my house. I didn't really, honestly, did not want to face rejection anymore. So I would say that rejection is not a thing of the past for any writer. It's kind of like a, an actress, mid-level or mid-career actress who still has to audition. I remember Sigourney Weaver talking about still having to audition. Um, it probably is always a part of a writer's life. Some of the stories in Ghost Summer are set in real places, uh, like Miami Beach, and then there are others that are set in the fictional Florida town of Gracetown. How did you come up with that name? It's interesting for a place that's so haunted. 
You know, uh, ironically, when many of those stories were first published, I was calling it Graceville and thought it was fictitious. And then I learned there actually was a Graceville. <laughs> so I had to change it to Gracetown. That's first of all. And I wanted it to be a fictitious town to have the freedom to change things and not have people saying, well, there's no statue like that in the middle of town. You know, just to basically create like uh, William Faulkner's fictitious Yaknapatapa County. And I liked the idea of a town where there are strange manifestations affecting children during the summer. That idea kind of stuck with me through several stories. The novel I'm working on now is also set in Gracetown. So I, I, I like the idea of just enough realism so that I can see it. It's sort of really based on Quincy, Florida, which is where my parents retired to. But I, I'm not calling it Quincy, and I, I'm, I've changed it, and I've made it my own. Well, you mentioned children, because a lot of your characters in the collection, they are children. They're the ones who these supernatural things often, you know, they see it first, um, or they are, uh, it acts upon them. Mm. Uh, why did you decide to use children as this type of vehicle for the stories? That was not a conscious choice. It was really only in compiling the collection that I noticed story after story after story was from the point of view of a child patient zero, the titular novella goes summer. Um, and if it's not from the point of view of children, it's often about children, a danger word about a grandfather and a grandchild during the zombie apocalypse. I had to really sit and ask myself, what's this about? As a as a person, I'm, I'm very drawn to that coming of age moment. I remember very distinctly sort of that age of 12, 13, where you kind of feel the pressure to stop being a kid, to stop playing with your Barbies, to, and you start seeing things that you don't want to see. You see things about your parents. You start to perceive more. And I had a very uh, distinct changing of the guard, as it were, from childhood to adulthood in a lot of ways. And I think it's because of that moment for me personally that I've come back to it so much in my fiction because these young people are having to face the end of childhood because of secondary forces acting upon them, some demonic force or a zombie force or, or, or magic of some kind and having to really find their inner strength and leadership to get through it. Well, one of the things I really loved about the collection is that after each story, you tell us a little bit about how that story came to be. And I think that's something that readers are often so curious about, but they don't usually get. Why did you decide to do that? Well, the story spans such a long period of time, basically 15 years, you know, um, that I thought it needed an explanation. You know, where did this story come from? What were you thinking about? Why did you write it? And almost every single story, if not every single story, was at the invitation of an editor. And sometimes just the reason for the invitation was interesting, like a story I wrote called Senora Suelta, which was basically uh, a prompt, you know? And a lot of those stories did come from prompts, like, oh, we're writing about this, write me a story about this. This particular prompt was about Lady Luck visiting the unluckiest man in the world. And I was asked to to write that on behalf of the great science fiction writer Harlan Ellison. And Harlan Ellison discovered Octavia Butler. He's a family friend. So I felt a personal draw to write that story. And I thought, eh, yeah, these are interesting notes people should know. And in particular, the titular story, Ghost Summer, mentions bodies being unburied. And it was 
a few years after I published that story that I learned that my family history in real life had a story about a young man buried anonymously on the grounds of a reformatory in Mariana, Florida. And it almost feels like that story from real life was speaking to me when I wrote the fictitious piece. How often do you experience something uh, just, you know, in your regular life, your everyday life, and you think, oh, that would make a great story or that would make a great novel? A lot of my inspiration comes from real life. If not events that have happened to me personally, then events that I've heard about, like hearing about those buried bodies has inspired me to work on a story about a reformatory and a young boy who's sent to this reformatory. One of the stories in Ghost Summer, I won't say which one, or maybe I did, but was a piece of the civil rights memoir I wrote with my mother. It was a piece of family history she didn't really want in the family memoir. So I kind of snuck it into a short story to give some resolution to it because it was an event that had, like all trauma, rolls down the generations and affects people who don't even know about the original trauma. And it was such a traumatic thing that I wanted to fix it. You know, you can't go back in time and actually fix things, but I do like sometimes to use fiction to fix things, which is what I'm doing in the novel I'm working on now. So this child died at the reformatory in real life, but in fiction, I get to change to a different ending. Well, I have to admit that I was a little bit scared to read this book uh, because I don't normally read horror, and I was worried that it was going to be gory, and I just, you know, blood and guts and all makes me very nervous. Um, but that's actually when I started reading, I realized that's not what these stories are at all. I mean, they are speculative, weird, they're disturbing, you know, some of them are quite dark, but they're not what I was picturing of what a, you know, a horror story would be. Um, do I just have the wrong idea about horror, or would you classify these stories another way? I think um, the answer is yes, perhaps to both. Um, there is horror. There was a subgenre called splatterpunk, which was very much about <laughs> the splatter and the gore and etc. But I, I think for the most part, horror writers are not writing gore, um, not in the way you see it in films. I, I would say that there's a big difference between a horror film, a, an R-rated horror film, and a horror novel for the most part. Um, and yes, it's a misconception that a lot of people have. I did have some resistance, you know, from especially since I was writing black fiction and black readers who had never read horror. They, why would they? They were not represented there previously. Um, would have that misconception that it was going to be gory and, and that sort of thing. So you're not alone in having that fear. And that was why I, I called my, my writing Supernatural Suspense, because horror just kind of had that label or that misconception around it. But speculative is also good, because this book is a blending of uh, science fiction and horror. So they're not actually all horror stories, but they kind of do elicit that reaction. And that's all horror really is. It's an emotion. Well, in addition to teaching at Antioch University, you've also taught at Spelman College, and now you're also teaching at UCLA. Have you ever faced any backlash in your teaching career because of the fact that you write speculative fiction? You know, the backlash, I think, would be the difficulty in securing a full-time position. I've really come to enjoy teaching to the point where I would rather do that full-time and write on the side. I really don't like having my income rely on book sales and story sales and all that. And I had in, in Atlanta, 
you know, I could probably snap my fingers and find a position because you have the HBCUs there, more people are familiar with my name. A lot of the game in um, academia is who knows who you are, who appreciates your work. So the farther the West Coast I move, you know, there are places where I literally did not even get a response to an application and some places where I did have an ally on the committee, someone who knew my work and could be a cheerleader, where I got farther along in the interview process. And I have heard through the grapevine in recent years, not just concerning me, but my husband, Stephen Barnes as well, that there's still some bias there against genre writing as not being um, impactful or, or literary enough or whatever those, those concerns are. So absolutely, you know, I would say there has been some backlash to that decision I made to write genre. It's not really a decision though. I'm drawn to it. I can't seem to help it. And if it turns out that it's more difficult securing a full-time position because of that, then so be it. You know, maybe I'll write for a television series or create a television series instead. Sometimes you need a door to close for the other doors to open. Well, you mentioned television. I know that you've also been working on writing screenplays and you have produced uh, trailers for some of your books and some of these stories. How does that uh, work sort of fit into your writing? Mm -hmm. Sometimes it just takes over my writing. I, I, maybe it's because I've written so many novels at this point and I've been writing prose for so long. I'm actually in some ways more excited about learning how to write screenplays. Like I'll pull myself away from my novel and write a 30 minute short film, which has no future, you know, that I can determine. There's no real reason to be writing it except for practice and for fun and maybe you submit it for, you know, a grant or something. But I love it. I love screenwriting. I love learning how to write screenplays. I, I, I love teaching screenwriting. I think even, despite the difficulty of getting films produced, and we did crowdfund a short film, Danger Word, my husband and I, with our, our director, Lucina Fisher, and I shot a little film on my iPhone. So there are ways to get films produced, but that element, you know, for me has been the most difficult part of screenwriting. And in a lot of cases it turns people off from screenwriting because what do you do after you write a screenplay it's so hard to get something made but for me I find myself fighting to work on my novel uh, <laughs> rather than fighting to work on the screenplays well do you how would you feel about if someone else wanted to take your work and you know bring it to the screen I was thinking when I was reading the stories, the Gracetown, that you know there could be a series based on Gracetown. We we pitched it as a series, not widely, just one place, and I think we need to renew that pitching effort. I think that would be a great series. I agree with you there. I just had a, a an inquiry from someone who said he wants to adapt um, one of the short stories to a film, and I it's not one that I'm particularly drawn to adapting. So I was like, sure, I'd be very curious to know what you would do with that. You know, in a case where it was one I felt very strongly about, I might want to fight for a co-credit or just say no altogether. But I am perfectly open because you can only do so much, you know, so I'm perfectly open to having others adapt my work. And hey, the more pots you have stirring, the, the better chance dinner will be ready. <laughs> well, you're very active on social media, especially on Twitter. And you've been very outspoken about your support for the Black Lives Matter movement. How does your activism affect your art? Interesting question. I, I like to think that there's subtle activism in almost everything I write, only because of the inclusion of history. You know, history is so often and so quickly forgotten that it's almost a revolutionary act to acknowledge the history 
in an artistic work, especially racial history, and a lot of that is very unfortunate and very violent, you know, against uh, black and brown people. So I've always tried to plant those seeds, but as I become more active in social justice on Twitter, and that was an accident, you know, I kind of got sucked in uh, Trayvon Martin and then really with Ferguson when you're literally seeing tweets from people who are being tear gassed or, or assaulted by police when there's nothing on the news. There was that really scary moment where it was like it wasn't really happening. Um, that taught me that social media was not just something to do for fun, that it was actually a really, really valuable tool and a weapon in the fight for social justice. So I made a short film called Lost. I just shot it on my iPhone by myself, no crew, no cast, but me. And that was the first time I really set out, uh, aside from the civil rights memoir, to write something that had a, a specific social justice agenda in that film. And that's going to carry on to my current novel, The Reformatory, because every time I get tired of writing a novel or I, I think, well, why not just work on a screenplay or do you really need to write another novel? All these thoughts that swirl in the writer's mind. There's another police shooting. There's another death while incarcerated or in custody that remind me why I'm writing this story because the events in the story are fictitious in part, but they're still happening every day. Well, here at Read More, we like to know about how your reading life has affected your writing life. So do you remember the first book you read that really was sort of a game changer that would, you know, made you say, wow, that made you see things differently? Um, I've had a very rich reading life, especially when I was a younger person. And, you know, I often say, I tell the story of listing my two favorite writers as Toni Morrison and Stephen King when I was in a writing workshop. But I got so much, I, I sensed so much resistance to the mention of Stephen King's name that it really kind of put me off of writing genre for a while, which meant put me off from my natural voice for a long time. And I, in fact, I was writing a lot of white characters and, and not even looking for myself in my work anymore. Ne never mind a horror element, I was still working out the racial piece. So I would have to say one work that really helped me blend all of my parts as a black woman who wanted to write about the world that was not just our own, it was Gloria Naylor's Mama Day. I mean, I knew Gloria Naylor was a very respected writer and that was important to me to have respect. And she was willing to write about sort of an otherworldliness, you know, sort of those layers that are not just apparent to the eye. And that really gave me permission to find myself. So between that and interviewing Anne Rice in 1992, when she said, oh, my books are taught in universities, I needed all that. I needed all that reinforcement just to feel confident enough to find my voice. And I, was, I started writing my first novel, The Between. If you, for some reason, could not read any new work, but you could only read three things that you've read in the past, and you could read those three things as much as you want, which three books would you choose? Oh, that's a hard question. I can only Clearly, you're being punished here. <laughs> I can only read three books. Woo, I, mm, that is a very, very tough one. Um, I would have to have a Toni Morrison novel in there. You know, I think it might be um, Parable of the Sower by Octavia Butler. And I'm, that's a tough choice between that and Kindred. Maybe they're all Octavia. Because <laughs> Kindred, I do go back and reread over and over again. Um, but I think Beloved, also by Toni Morrison, 
what else? Let's see, the third book, the third book, something that I just can't do without. You know, I'm gonna I'm gonna do something here that is uh, unorthodox because you know a lot of writers won't admit that they read their own books, but I do go back from time to time, and I the book that I I most enjoy revisiting that I actually wrote would be The Living Blood, I think. So I, I would I would be sad if I couldn't ever read that again. I have to put one of my own books on a list. <laughs> well, there's nothing wrong with that. Um, <laughs> is there a book? Uh, sort of on the flip side that you have tried to read several times and just can't get through just feel like it doesn't resonate with you even though you know it might be popular with other people but for you it just just doesn't do it or, or maybe hasn't done it yet hmm I can't think of any I would admit to no. <laughs> well, I, well I know it's a tough question do you have one maybe where the writer's no longer with us so you don't have the pressure that you'll see this person say at a conference um you know, I can't think of a specific title, really. I, I can't. But, um, you know, I remember I had to read Ulysses by James Joyce when I was in college. In fact, there was a lot of literature I read as a sort of almost a dual English major in college that I would not go back to read for pleasure. And I think books that are just, too, to my taste, too experimental, um, too nonlinear, too difficult to follow, I really, really like to have a character I care about um, and, and events I can follow in a novel. And the, and the less I have that, the less chance I'll get through it. <laughs> so what are you reading right now? So right now on the fiction side, I've just cracked open Nalo Hopkinson's new short story collection, Falling in Love with Hominids. And on the nonfiction side, uh, for book research about the real life reformatory in Mariana, Florida, where my great uncle died, it's a book called The Boys of the Dark, a story of betrayal and redemption in the Deep South. And this is a book by a survivor of that reformatory. A lot of the survivors who have written about that have actually been white, which is interesting because there was a black side, a black wing. Um, and those survivors have either not had the access um, or maybe there's a psychological block um, to even having discussed it in their families in the same way. I don't know. I mean, I would just imagine that that was just one more tragedy on top of so many that maybe the blacks, I, I really can't say what the difference is, but I do find the memoirs um, obviously very informative, even though I expect that the experience of the black students, as horrific as it was for the white students, was even in some ways worse. Well, how can readers get in touch with you, you know, follow you, see what you're doing? Well, I am all over social media. I have a, uh, an author account on Facebook under my name, Tanana Do. I also have a personal account under the same name, so they can be a little confusing. Um, and also I'm on Twitter, at Tanana Do. Okay, well, Tanana thank you so much. I really appreciate you being a guest here on the Read More podcast. Thank you for having me. You can find out how to win a free copy of Tanana Review's Go Summer on our website, readmorepodcast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at Read More Podcast. Join us again in two weeks when our guest will be Janine Capot-Crousset. And in the meantime, I'm Marva Hinton reminding you to read more.